This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rout. And we're starting to wind, well, we're winding up rather than winding down. I think, Ruth, we've got so many books to oh, talk about. Wonderful books yes. come out this yep. year. I'm just thinking back and, gosh, I couldn't pick one out. Of my, I've got about 10. I just absolutely loved. Yep. So today we're sort of looking at writing about the outdoors in some ways, aren't we? Well, yes, I definitely am. Um, I didn't know about Paul Kilgar, who lives in Golden Bay, and his story is the story of a wanderer, a long-distance tramper, and uh, he's just a legend. I didn't even know that he'd walked from Fiordland to Golden Bay at one stage, and he's well-known in the, in the area of trampers. He's in his 70s now. And I am talking with local poet Geoffrey Paparoa-Holman about his new collection, and the first part of it is very much rooted in his um, life and, and work over on the West Coast. Country halls. Not even a splinter or a lead-head nail. A zip-heater cord or an exit sign is left in the valleys where the great hall stood, raised in the days when the blood of the people flowed to the muscles and back to the lungs, the camps and the villages ringing with song. Thundering dances, piano, bass, drum, rolled every weekend when the workday's wear vanished in a foxtrot, Virginia reeling, juiced up on keg beer and perfume hormones, hair cream and lipstick on a powder-shine floor, buffed to perfection by the sugar-sack kids. Fights in the alleyway, sex in the car, Bouncing on the leaf springs, teenage spies. Sneak up close from the smirking shadows. Unscrew the valves, let down the tyres. Flee back for supper on the groaning trestles. Crayfish, white bait, pavlova dreams. Marilyn Munro and, oh, James Dean. Something's happening. Something's changed. A different movie. The actors are strange. Miners are ghosts and the timber men. The railway gang and the forestry boys slip from the hall and close the door. The last look back of lovers turning, written out of history by faceless forces. That was Geoffrey Paparoa Holman reading from his latest collection of poetry, After Hours Trading and the Flying Squad. Geoffrey's well known to us here in Christchurch. He's an acclaimed poet. He's an historian and a memoirist. He's just um, retired as senior adjunct fellow at the University of Canterbury. And among the many things that he's done with his life, he's um, helped men at the um, Christchurch Men's Prison, um, going out with other poets for weekly sessions with them. Geoffrey, I love this collection. That country hall is my country hall. It's your country hall. It's everyone's country hall, isn't it? Well, I hope so, Moran. Um, you know, that the poems are obviously written about a certain type of culture, a certain historical period, um, and they're South Island poems, right? Um, I don't have anything against Aucklanders. I love them. I lived in Auckland as a small boy. But I do have problems when people regard the South Island as something 
um, you know, rustic and rural and not of the same interest as being um, part of the same country. So, and even in the cities in the South Island where people, you know, more and more perhaps, you know, don't have any links to the country or have never lived there or the families that grew up there moved to the city years ago, they become urbanites, right? But I, I grew up on rural people, um, coal miners and, and scrub cutters and timber workers. And and then once I left school and dropped out, ended up on farms, sharing, stuff like that. So, you know, I have experience. I'm not a country person. Um, I'm a bit of a city boy. But I went out there. Um, you know, it's a bit like... In, Herman Hesse has this novel, Narcissus and Gormand. Narcissus and Gormand. And... Um, you know, one of them is a, I always forget them mixed up, but one of them is a, is, is a young monk who can't really handle it um, in, the, in the cloister. So he goes out into the, the Middle Age world and um, the world of the Middle Ages and, 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 and cuts his teeth, you know, and, and gets kind of, you might say he gets his face pushed in the mud of reality, whereas the other guy stays in there and they come back later together. So um, I think... Everybody's got different parts to their nature, but I have one part of me which is which is rustic and rural, and the other part is very urban. Um, and so I've got these two things going on inside me. And I need the city, but I don't. Um, I never forget the country that you know, and the people, and the places mm. that 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 raised me and nourished me. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I guess these poems are um, not so much a tribute, but it's it's everything that's inside me trying to get out before it's too late. Yes. <laughs> Well, it's funny that you should talk about those two sides um, because this collection feels a bit like that. The first part of it is very much there in the country, you know, um, all your lived experience comes to the fore. It's not about you, but it's about the places and the times and the activities. But the second half is, is more rooted in your urban life and your sort of uh, philosophical life and and your current life. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the um, you know the metaphys- metaphysics are kind of buried in the in in, in the first section, and although they're there, um, you know if you look at that last poem, um, you know where you you have you know the dredge rusting, and you have this whole litany of things that are left behind when people disappear. So um, it's not that the the, the existential side of life, if you like, the interior side of life is out of these poems at all. Um, but in the second half, yes, I mean, they're all they're all different occasional poems written over a period of maybe ten years too, like like these ones. Um, and some of them are quite recent. You know, they re- they reference COVID. You mm. know, they mention me, me walking my Jack Russell, which I've only had for about three years. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean. Yeah, you, it's hard really to talk about them without doing an individual poem, but, you know, um, there are poems in there which reference recent deaths. There are poems in there which re- reference old loves. There's one There's one about an elephant that jumped out of a, a, yes. tra- a tram yes. in Germany. <laughs> yes. um, so, that, you know, they're, they're just individual poems. Um, I, mean, they're, they're, I mean, I really do like that one about about, about, about Tuffy, his famous elephant that jumped out of a, an overhead railway in a German city of Wuppertal. Um, they have this famous railway, which goes round around the city, and it, and it is actually hanging, okay, um, on this on this vehicular system, like a monorail. Yeah, it's a, it, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a monorail, and it goes. Yeah. And Wuppertal is famous for this. And and um, I came across Wuppertal because I was doing some research 
on my my great aunt who lived nearby and and, and died there after the war. Um, so I heard about Tuffy, um, and she was a local elephant from the zoo, a young Indian elephant that the um, the locals decided as a publicity stunt to show how wonderful this overhead railway was to give Tuffy a ride in, in, in the Schwebebahn. So Tuffy is taken to the Schwebebahn and bribed with bananas. They get her inside, but she panics, right? Of course. <laughs> and leaps out of the overhead railway into the canal. Um, it was a famous incident. Um, and, and, well, that um, deserves a poem. Well, it does it? deserve Demands a poem. Demands a poem. Demands shall a poem. I say. And then, I, and then I, I wrote it in German as well, with a bit of, bit of help from um, Google Translate. My German's a bit rudimentary these days, but um, I've shown it to a German speaker, a German person, and she says it's very good. So, you know, that's another little treat in there if you like, if you like elephants. But in fact, um, you know, the mother of the elephant was still living in India. Um, so the poem references this this um, cry of the, the, the little frightened elephant for its mother as it leaps into cyberspace. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that as I say, the second half mm. is is a wonderful collection of all sorts of things. Mm. It's um, you know referencing contemporary life, past life, and these mm. odd incidents that that as I say demand a poem. Shall we have another one? I mean, they're occasional poems, so basically. So, you know, uh, there was a real discipline going on in, in writing these things. It wasn't just, you know, when I got to the end of four to five stanzas, that was my limit, so I kind of stopped. So anyway, what have you got there? Grinding the Gear, okay. 1969. Yeah, well, it'd be good to talk about this. I'll read it and then maybe talk about it. Grinding the Gear, 1969. Man is born for trouble, so the good book says, sure as the sparks fly upwards... Grinding combs and cutters, Western Australia, somewhere now forgotten, comet trails on emery paper, spinning on the grinding wheel. 1969. The farmer's son is dead in Vietnam. His mother brings the scones for Smoko. The shearing must go on. The young goats have leapt onto a sports car's boot and skidded down the bonnet. They've scoured the fresh green paint, but nothing matters. He was born for trouble. The gear is sharp now. Sure as sparks fly upwards, her heart cries. Tell me about it. Well, there's there's an incident in the book with the goats on the sports car's boot when I was shearing in Western Australia around this time. Um, I was shearing for a, an English couple, um, and they were delightful. His name was Markham Quick, unforgettable, and his wife, and they both had you know, very very crystal polished English accents, and they'd gone to Australia with their money and bought a sheep farm, and they had the shearers come in, and so we were having we were having um, lunch one day um, after at, 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 at midday, and um, she is she is I've forgotten her name, but she was checking at them and said, "Oh look, Markham, the goats, the little goats, they're jumping on the MG." <laughs> she said, "Oh, they're on the they're on the boat." No, no, no! They're on the bonnet. Oh my goodness! They're sl- <laughs> they're sliding down the bonnet with their little hooves, and of course they were scraping the paint. It was it had been repainted, so you know obviously it's a, it's a good story. But it was this image that stuck in my mind about being over there, um, and so you know when the palm sort of began, it just began with that first verse. You know, man is born for trouble, and it's from Ecclesiastes, right? Um, it's it's a very ancient text. Man is born for trouble, as short as sparks fly upwards. That's in the Bible. Um, and so, you know, 
I use that saying to then take the reader into the act, the act of sharpening the gear while you're shearing. You know about shearing sheds and the, the combs and the covers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you see these sparks go shooting upwards. But that was that was sort of promoted, pulled out of my memory by the fact that the sparks flying upwards in this biblical quote came back to me, and I thought, oh, it's just like grinding, and it just you know it just comes out, mm. um, and so it's spinning on the grinding wheel, and then bang, in 1969, it's just it's just it's one word, it's stopped, you know, there's, there's a, a full stop after wheel and a full stop after 69. Because it's trying to draw the reader's attention to this date. Why, why is this important? Because it's about Vietnam. The poem is about Vietnam, really. Um, and while I was sharing in this area, um, I lived in a place called Franklin River, in a small country village. And then just down the road, um, the nearest pub was a place called Rocky Gully. And somewhere on that Franklin River, Rocky Gully Road was a farm. And this young guy, who I don't know, never knew, um, was one of the Australian troops in Vietnam and he was killed. And, it, you know, the news sort of went round the whole area like wildfire, you know, like flames in the tops of the gum trees because he was a local and he was dead. And, and mm. to me that's, you know, that's as striking an image of war to me as anything you might see in the Peter Jackson movie, you know, um, a single life. Um, and so that, that memory of that life came back to me as I was writing about this whole area. There they are shearing, um, and she has to keep doing stuff. You know, she has to keep living, despite the fact bringing the tea, bringing the tragedy. Scones, yep. You know. yep. So you have all this stuff moved together, and then the refrain comes back: "He was born for trouble." Right? Yes. Doesn't mean he was a troublemaker, but we're born into this world, and we'll encounter trouble. Is the, you know, um, <laughs> and, and the sparks the, will fly. Yeah. So the gear is sharp, mm. you know. But it, mm. the, the whole image is, is is about wounding and death, um, and it's all concentrated into a. A, a real situation where the shearer is grinding his comb um, and it just uses that literary reference, that biblical reference, to talk into lived experience of the of the writer, mm-hmm. whether it's me or not, but you know, poets do this all the time. So, yeah. Well, Geoffrey, it's a great collection. It's a wonderful collection. I can't imagine anybody reading it won't find something that resonates very deeply with them. So thank you for coming in, reading your poems, talking about them, giving us an insight into how you work as a poet. The book is called After Hours Trading and the Flying Squad. It's by Geoffrey Paparoa-Holman, and it's published by Carbide Press. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Paul Kilgar is one of the New Zealand's backcountry's most famous names and grew up in northwest Auckland during the 50s and 60s, sometimes taking off school to walk the farmland bush and sandhills. When he shouldered his first tramping pack at age 21, he experienced a revelation and knew he'd be doing this for the rest of his days. Kilgore has also had a lifelong obsession with batches, cribs and huts, and he's among the top hut baggers of New Zealand. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Ruth. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's a just amazing story, a life in the backcountry. Um, it's it's. Gone Bush is a title, but it's a life in the back country and beyond. And I thought when you left the Air Force, 1970 it was, you were tired of being told what to do and you had always had this um, 
feel for searching and just enjoying the nature and life, not wanting to be competitive, but you just had a, a feeling in your, well, I suppose a mental feeling as much as anything, and two good legs to walk on. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Actually, it was the end of 1976 I left the Air Force. Oh, sorry. Um, All right. We bit longer. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, yeah, you're right there. It was, you just sort of realised the potential of the human body, the potential of my legs. You could just do anything, really. And a lot of it has to do with mental attitude. If, if you can get uh, the mental attitude correct, you can achieve all sorts of things. I love the way you had those little drawings of all the huts you stayed in um, it's before each chapter. Uh, that was a um, that was a, sort of kept the... It, joins all the story up, didn't it? Oh, I suppose so, yeah, mm. in a way, yeah. And yeah. Um, also, um, after you'd quit the Air Force, um, you were interested in what Hillary had done in Nepal, and you did visit a few countries before you decided to do the big trip from Fiordland back home to Golden Bay. Quite a long way to walk. What, yeah. what finally made you decide to do that? Well, I always wanted to do it, and um, over the years I found myself sort of nibbling at little bits of uh, the land between um, the far southwest corner, Fieldland, and Golden Bay, and um, then I had the opportunity to do a, a voluntary conservation job at Pusica Point, or right near Pusica Point, and put preservation, preservation in it, and um, I thought, right, I've run out of excuses why I can't do it, now I'll just walk home. <laughs> just <laughs> that like that. Weird. I'd sort of done a bit of research before and realised that it was, it was possible. Um, it wasn't, you know, I just worked out my own route and didn't follow any particular way, and I also wanted to connect as many places that I hadn't been to before, too, and uh, certainly achieved that. But another one that was really important, I got sort of tired of racing a vast distance, driving, flying, to go for a walk. And I thought, I'm going to reduce my carbon footprint. I'm going to change it to footprint. <laughs> that was a really strong motivation, too, to be able to walk the length and not use a, a vehicle along the way. Was, how did you that meant a lot, too. How did you prepare for this? Um, well, I just had a whole lot of maps lying on the ground, on the floor here, and I'd sort of dig into and I had a rough route figured out. And I copied off maps, maps, a lot of maps are really heavy, so I just copied off the bits I thought I needed, and wherever there was any private land, a few places, I'd sort of make inquiries and um, find out who owned this land and ring them up. And in, in three cases, it was a, a person who on the surface appeared to be a grumpy farmer who would say, oh, yeah, I suppose you can come across on one condition. I'm thinking, oh, here we go. He said, come to the homestead and receive hospitality. So it turned out to be I met these lovely, lovely people on the surface. They looked a bit gruff, but deep inside they were a big, gentle teddy bear, kind-hearted, lovely people. And that was that was just made access through private land so much easier. I'd sometimes mail food, and a few occasions I'd mail um, food supply drops to high country farms or to friends who lived on farms along the way. And and a few, three occasions, or four occasions, I'd just pop out of the hills to the nearest little town and restock and then... Up you went again. again. Hmm? Travelling light was important. Well, travelling as light as I could without compromising too much. And um, I'm pleased I took, there, was, there wasn't a single item that I never used on that trip. Um, so that was that meant I had just the right amount of equipment. Um, 
you know, even in summertime, you can get extremes of weather. I've had frosts on New Year's Day. I've had huge storms and flooded rivers in January, February. You know, you sort of have to be ready for everything. And there were some occasions where I couldn't shelter in huts. There was the gaps between were far too so far were far too long. So I relied on my one-person tent, which um, I sheltered in. In some cases, in quite atrocious weather, but the tent. The tent worked. <laughs> kept me, kept me dry. The huts. Tell me more about some of the huts because you stayed in twelve hundred plus, wasn't it? I think it was twelve hundred plus. Um, yeah, I've been to twelve hundred plus, plus huts, yes. but on that actual walk, I think it was eighty-four new yes, huts that I've never yes. been to, something like that. Um, that I'd um, never been to before, so I, I, you know, collected a few more huts to my name, um, but. There's still hundreds of huts out there. You know, sometimes some people count sheep when they can't sleep. I count backcountry huts that I haven't been to, and I think there's about 400 or 500 huts that I haven't been to yet in um, New Zealand, uh, North and South Island, and Stewart Island. Uh, I'll never run out of places to explore. A backcountry hut is an excuse to go off, go to new country. You know, I find one's got to be careful when you collect things. You know, you've got to... Um, for me, it has a purpose. It's a means of motivation. And you sometimes need a little bit of motivation when you get a bit older, I've discovered. Now in your 70s? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Eight four days, was it? And um, 15 rest days. How important were those rest days? Very important. Um, some of them were enforced upon me due to sudden income of storms, um, flooding rivers and making travel impossible beyond. Um, but, oh, a rest day, really sought after a rest day. A rest day is just such a wonderful thing to have. You feel like you've really earned it, you know, and I used to write in hut books how good it is to do nothing all day long and then after having done so, to relax. <laughs> and that's what a rest day does for me. You know, you just totally relax. You've got no worries in the world. You don't have to run out and water the glass house or, or, or you know, cut a, cut the lawn or anything. It's just totally resting. And I just love those rest days, you know. You sort of just you look out the window, especially if you've got a good hut to shelter, and you look out the window and watch the rain teeming down and watch the rivers flood. There's something cosy about that, especially if you've got a fire going as well. It's a very honest story. When you decided oh, you. to write the book, you've made it very personal, um, Family events come into it, um, meeting Janet and the final part of the story. And it's, it seems to me that um, your respect for the people you met, whoever they were, you always had a strong respect for what they were doing and, with, and you, yeah. your footprint wasn't going to, be, was going to be as light as possible. Yeah. Well, that respect is two-way. You know, you very quickly... Can I very quickly able to tune in? You know, I met, met the, I remember meeting a gold mine arrived at the hut and there was cigarette smoke pouring out the door and I'm thinking, oh heck, this is an, an empty beer can on a pile there. I'm thinking, gosh, this is going to be, this is going to be a bit crazy. But it turned out to be, there was tremendous respect as as soon as I arrived. And of course, you get, you receive respect, you give respect. You know, simple lesson, isn't it? The whole yes, world could learn from it. Is. Yes. <laughs> And everybody, no matter how rough on the surface they are, the, the respect potential is in everybody, I believe, and it's huge. So did you have diaries? Did you keep oh, yeah. logbooks oh, on yeah. your way so you could go back to those? Yep, yep, yep. I, I have an extensive logbook, and in more recent years, the logbook gets a bit more extensive and talks about the people I met and the, the things I've seen along the way and 
phone numbers I've, I've uh, picked up along the way, and or even messages from people to give to someone I might meet further up the country that they they know. You know, <laughs> easy to carry messages and phone messages. Easy to deliver that sort of information from one end of the island to the other when you're tramping through the mountains. You say whatever for my next wanderings take. If I'm in the bush or beside a backcountry river, I'll be happy. And yeah. one step at a time is really good walking. Yeah. And, and that, that was, was your mantra, wasn't it? One step at a time. It was. It, it always has been. And the interesting thing, I met a young um, French-Canadian woman once on a tramping trip locally here, and she'd been adventuring around the world, tramping all over the place. And that was also her motto. Her motto was, one step at a time is really good walking. And so we, we've always shared this, you know. And it's, uh, When someone says something that you suddenly can click into also, it's, it's, a, it's a reaffirmation that you're doing something real, you know, and something that really means something and feels good. Well, it certainly does feel very real. I felt I was sort of just beside you, but I wouldn't be walking. I'd be, uh, I don't know what I'd be doing. I don't think I'd quite make it. Uh, and not certainly not now, but I might make small bits as I love the South Island so much. And, oh, and the areas that you talked about, are some of the areas that I've um, tramped in in the earlier days. So I just loved it, um, Paul. And it's, it's, it, it's almost like you're meandering. You go sideways quite a lot, and I like that. You got to a hut, and then you didn't go, right, I've got to keep on this track to get to the end. You yeah. were able to go, just, well, let's go somewhere I haven't been yeah. that's yeah. close by, and, and off you'd go. And yeah. So yeah. there was no, it was, it was very peaceful, as you said at the beginning, and um, it it was very encouraging and inspiring because you, we, you weren't a competitor, were you? No, definitely not, definitely not. No, um, I find I, I got through that competitive streak in the 70s when I got into sort of mountaineering and it became, I may have mentioned that in the book, became really competitive. And then it got so competitive, you're pushing yourself beyond and uh, I had people that actually literally fell off mountains and died as a result of that competitiveness and... It was almost like a drug. Each each buzz had to be bigger and better than the one before. And I thought, oh, that's an addictive thing getting in, in the way here of what's really real about the country. And that, that sort of knock-that-one-off type attitude, I'm not into that. Hey, I'm just being there with the mountain rather than beating it. Indeed. <laughs> There's a real difference. So, so yeah, thank I'm you. I'm pleased for... you saw that aspect of the bush, of, of the book. Yes, I, I, the, oh, that, well, that impressed me so much. Mm. And your mm. whole philosophy yeah, of well, life comes through. Yeah, I to convey, which is, and I'm pleased that mm. had quite a bit of feedback on that. So, so Gone Bush, A Life in the Back Country and Beyond by Paul, Paul Kilgar is uh, published by HarperCollins, and it's an inspiring read. Thanks, Paul. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.